What do people say about sin? Everybody has their own opinion whether they even say the word or not. There are people who don't think there's any such thing as sin. Never has been any sin, never will be any. There are other people who just don't like to talk about it. Never mention it. There are people who say that they once had it and they don't, uh, they don't have it now. And then there are people that say that we are sinners and we are in the need of the grace of God. And when we confess that, that uh, is a good characteristic of a Christian. But out in the world, there's a lot of different views. And um, I think in the modernistic world of our day, or postmodern, however you want to term that, uh, actually, uh, they would say that there is no such thing as sin. And uh, you might have heard that. Is that possible? That there is, there is no sin? It's just a figment of our imagination. Those same people usually say there's no God also. If you have no God, you have no sin. That's what they're saying. And uh, maybe we don't even exist either, right? But uh, anyway, with all those different views, John, uh, who wrote this great epistle, 1 John, answers a lot of questions. A number of questions uh, that were practical for his day. And as we look at it, we go, wow, these are still practical today. And so one of those questions would be, do Christians sin? And obviously, I think we all know the answer to that. No, of course not. No. <laughs> yeah, we, we do, don't we? We do still sin, even though we know that uh, we have been forgiven and our sin has been cast away from us as far as the uh, judicial matters are concerned. But we see uh, in verse 8 and 10 that is dealing with the uh, that question and answer, we have to remember one of the main purposes of John here is to protect the believers, the ones he's writing to, from the false teaching that was coming out in that day. There was a one group called the Docetists, and they actually were something like the Gnostics. I keep bringing this up, but this is one of the main purposes that uh, John wrote this, is that... These people believed that the material flesh was bad, it was evil, you couldn't help it, it was just there. But if you have some kind of special knowledge, you realize that you have a spirit, and that spirit is perfect, so therefore because you have this flesh, it really doesn't matter, it's bad anyway, but the spirit is perfect. So sin was an issue, wasn't an issue to those people. Because they said, hey, big deal, that's my flesh, here's my, uh, my spirit. And so that was coming in the Christian body. That's their way of thinking. And so they would say that they don't sin anymore. And then there are some that even say that, hey, yes, I'm a Christian and I have never sinned. Imagine that. That's what some of them were doing. Uh, Some of them believed you could actually, what we know of today, uh, would be called perfectionism. You reach a level of perfectionism. Spiritual perfection where you don't sin anymore. And that is a theology that is current with the body of Christ today. Uh, That's not biblical, as we will look at this text today. And, of course, they will use this very text to try to destroy our thought on this. But um, they say once you get to this point, you do not sin. doesn't matter uh, what they do, uh, what they say. Uh, they they can't uh, do that because they've already had their sins taken away. And so therefore, I can't sin anymore. So, uh, there are other Christians on the other extreme that say, yeah, and as soon as you sin, you better confess it because if you don't, you're going to hell. So you've every sin that you've done, boy, that, that would be difficult because there are a lot of times that we sin and we are not that aware of it sometimes. Later on we are. But at that moment, what would happen if you died as soon as you did a sin and you didn't get a chance to uh, confess your sin and get forgiveness? Well, you'd go to hell. That's, I'm just saying, that's what I've asked these people. And that is sad because that is not any rest at all in Christ because you always have to be confessing your sin, and we should be. But uh, as soon as we do it, we better do it quickly because we are losing our salvation. It's a tit-for-tat type thing. Isn't that kind of scary? Boy, it would be to me. I mean, how can you have any security at all on that? You'd never be at rest. 
So we can see that there is definitely a need for the book of John as we, uh, we get this clarified as far as the issue of sin is. He gives different kinds of tests in his epistle, and one of them today is dealing with the moral test. Um, the, does one confess his sin? If one confesses his sin, it's a good test to see if, yeah, he's probably a Christian. But if he doesn't confess his sin, I think there's a good chance that he is not a Christian. Um, what do people say about sin? Um, if they say they don't sin, I don't think they're genuine. Um, the mark of a Christian, he continually confesses his sin. It's, it's a mark of his life. It's a characteristic of him. The forgiveness has already been done. And because of that forgiveness that we already have, we confess to our Lord because we have been forgiven. And that's kind of the crux of the matter where we're heading as far as the Christian is concerned. What happens when the Christian sins? Well, we start in verse 8 today. And um, I have it on your outlines there, verses 6 through 10. That picks up a little bit of this first part of this test. Um, And it wouldn't be bad to start there at verse 6. And you'll notice the if we say... And then you'll say, and then we'll see something if we do or if we confess. Verse 6 If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's where we're at today. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this precious Word. And may we understand a little bit better what uh, sin is and how it affronts You as a holy God and how we are to respond and have our lives continually being changed so we can truly honor You. In Jesus' name, Amen. We look at the first part. This is all our sinners. We know that, don't we? Uh, That's the depravity of man. And this is where we start our first test, this moral test. What do people say about sin? That's how you can get a pretty good clue whether one's a Christian or not. What do they say about sin? Here, this person, and and we covered this last week, and I'm only going to take about a minute on this, verse 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, if we're saying this, and, and we're really saying that, hey, I have fellowship, but yet my lifestyle, my walk, is really in darkness, then what this person is doing, he's claiming that his sin actually is righteousness. He has obvious sin, but he calls it, Righteousness. What, what he does is he redefines sin. You know that kind of thing there. He's in darkness. So those two verses we looked at last time, one who is in fellowship with the Lord will not walk in darkness. He's always in the light. That's the thing. Whenever his sin is done, it's seen out in the light. But these guys are claiming to be Christians. Absolutely would say, I'm a Christian. But yet, their lives are not consistent with what they claim, what they say. How many people have we ran into that? People who say they're Christians, make confessions of faith, professions of faith, but yet their lives never uh, walk the talk. And that's what these guys are right here. John just clarifies that. Uh, But the walk proves, if you're in the light, that you are in righteousness then. So there's verses 6 and 7. Now we get to our, where we're at today. And you can see how these uh, come into play. That's why I included 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship. Now verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. And that's what a lot of these uh, docetists, uh, these 
pre-Gnostics were saying they didn't have any sin. Uh, it's a claimer. He's claiming that he doesn't sin anymore. Yes, I've become a Christian, and you know what? I have no sin. What? You have no sin. But what if you even think on these things and you dwell, I don't sin. I don't sin anymore. I have talked to people that have actually had the audacity to tell me that they do not sin anymore. And you start questioning, have you loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength today? With every ounce of your strength? Have you loved your neighbor? Yes, I have. Every part of you? Every ounce? You gave everything to that? You, didn't, you haven't had an anger thought at all that would be unrighteous? No. And they don't know a holy God and what their sin really is. They're deceived, it says here in verse 8. We deceive ourselves. He actually says that he doesn't sin anymore. So the first false teaching was that it's possible to have fellowship with God and still continue sinning. Verse 6 and 7. In this second kind of claim, it's an error that's added on to that. And they say they ceased to sin. They're deceived. They don't see where they really are at. And if a person believes he doesn't sin, what he's doing, he's opening it up for excuses for sin. I don't sin. And he just sinned. He just made some kind of claim that he doesn't and you know that you're going to see some sin uh, very quickly. He doesn't recognize sin. He has deceived himself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Now the word for sin is hamartia. And that is uh, the Greek word. It's uh, really the inherent propensity to sin. It's original sin. Uh, it's the foundation or the very fountain of our sinning, of our actual sin. You have a nature and then you have the action, practical sin. Each of us, as soon as we're born, as we're in the womb even, each of us bring in with us the wrath and the judgment and the damnation in us. That's what we're bringing forth. That's where we really are at. God is just. God could cut us off even if we didn't do an actual sin because of the very nature. I was listening to George Whitfield's sermon. I'd like to say I listened to George Whitfield, but that would take us back about 300 years or somewhere in that vicinity. But in his sermon, he said, even if we didn't do one actual sin, we may think that he's not fair to do that because we haven't done anything. The, the, the baby is just even out of the womb. And you're saying he's already a sin. Well, that's not a fair kind of God. Yes, it is. It's very just because we are held sinful because of our federal head, Adam. Because the Bible tells us we are found in Adam. That is our very nature. Uh, if you haven't felt the weight of original sin, you're not a Christian. If you, the original sin is the, what the sin that comes from Adam. If you haven't felt that, you know that's 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 that sin, that fountain uh, that's in there, that's just there. Um, the burden. There's a burden of sin there. If you remember Pilgrim's Progress, the burden that he had. It seems like he, you know, had a, actually a pretty good talk. It seemed like he was really for real, and, and and his walk looked good. But yet he knew that there was something still there. Martin Luther did everything he possibly could to do right, to be righteous, and yet he realized that there was something still there. The burden of our sins are intolerable to our thoughts. If we look inward, we'll see the lust, the temptation, the temper that we have, the pride. It's awful. It's ugly. And God has every right to throw every person into hell, into the flaming fire. The word here in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, is a singular term. Sin, not with the S there. It is sin, not sins. And we'll run into that in verse 9 if we confess our sins with the S. This is why it's the nature of mankind here. Man is born in sin because of the nature, because of Adam. This is the most important doctrine to understand about ourselves. 
We must understand God. We must understand ourselves. If we look at God and His holiness, which we talked about last week, then that light shines on us and we see a corruption that is inside. And we must see that to come to Christ. Unless one understands the depravity of man, he is going to have difficulty understanding himself, understanding God, understanding any doctrine. If he doesn't get the depravity of man down, he will not get an understanding of God's Word in its proper um, way. Man must know that he can never please God with his own righteousness. So we go back to the Psalm, Psalm 51, verse 5. This is where David confesses his sin. David has committed a terrible bunch of sins, but there's something even worse, and it's his very nature. But we know his sin with Bathsheba and uh, the consequences that came out of that. They just kept going and going down. In Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The act itself is not. That's what God has given into marriage. But He's saying because the mother is sinful, the father is sinful by their nature, whoever comes through that womb with the two joining together, two human beings, then we see that they're brought forth in iniquity. David recognized his actions. And then in verse 5, he says... This is the way that I am. This is my nature. It's everybody's nature. We go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This goes against the grain of all of mankind's thinking. Humanism detests what we are talking about here today. (laughs) This is an affront to most of the world. People hate this thought. And even... True Christians hate the thought. There are certain Christians that hate the thought of total depravity. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Or in that, through one man, who is that, Adam? Sin entered the world. Death then came as a result of that. Death spread to all men. It shows that it's there. All you have to do is look at people. They die. Go look at, at the grass. The grass dies. The flower dies. Everything around us is dying. It's showing that there's something wrong. Animals fight each other. Kill each other. Animals will come at you and try to attack you if a dog gets loose. One of those crazy dogs that's wild and mangy, and you're walking by, and boom, it attacks you, or a lion, or in it, you know, the world is turned upside down. There are things that just don't make sense, and it's always constantly reminding the nature of sin. And uh, in Second Chronicles chapter six, you get to exercise your left hand there. <laughs> Verse 36. Don't see this one too much, but when they sin against you, and look at this, it has a little parenthesis here. For there is no one who does not sin. I think that pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? There is no one who does not sin. That sounds like our other passages. One is deceiving himself. He believes he doesn't have a fallen sinful nature. Peter recognized this. He was in the boat. He had been fishing. And he sees Jesus... He sees what Jesus does and he recognizes immediately that God, Jesus there, is holy. And he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So that was Peter. He was, he was pretty good. <laughs> depart from me, I'm a sinful man. We must see ourselves the way we really are. And once we do, then that's where freedom comes. And that's where the truth starts seeping in and taking over. There's no good thing, yes? I don't know whether you know anybody that's claiming sinless perfection. I don't know if you've ever met anybody. I have. I will tell you, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but the Wesleyan Methodist still believe that there is sinless perfection. John Wesley is the one who came up with that theology. Um, John Wesley really didn't believe that he had reached that sinless perfection when it all comes down to it, to be honest with you, from my readings. 
but he did say you could reach that level. Many believed in that after that. And then um, you have Wesleyan people who are like the Nazarenes. I'm not trying to chop anybody down. I'm just saying here's what they believe. They believe that you can reach a perfect state. No more sin. They actually believe that. Most of them aren't going around telling you that. But if you ask them, and I'm sure that probably some of you have ran into those people. Um, I'll tell you what, if you know somebody like that, um, I think it would be good to say, hey, listen, I'd like to talk to your next door neighbor. (laughs) Better than that, can I talk to your wife or or your husband? Uh, How about your kids? (laughs) Um, How about the wider family circle? Mother, father, or brothers, sisters. Somebody that knows them real well. Robbie Burns said, Oh, for the gift to see ourselves as others see us. We rate ourselves higher than what other people might do. (laughs) Believe that or not. But you see what John is pointing out here? That we don't see ourselves as we ought. And our sinful nature is there. We still fight that sinful nature in the flesh, even though it's been conquered. The power has been broken. I want you to understand that there's there's one thing about a constant, constant sin nature and an, and one that now has been broken. The power of Satan has been broken. The power of the flesh, that sinful thing that's in our members, as Romans 7 talks about, we still fight that, but it's been defeated. It's been broken. And we can beat sin. Do we believe that we are much worse in our sinful nature than anything that we could do as a sinful act? There are things that we hold back. There are times when we could really get angry, but there are other people around, so we hold it back and we do pretty good and we pat ourselves on the back. But I want to tell you, the sinful nature is much more evil and worse than your acts. And sometimes you say, I've done some pretty bad acts. Well, shame on you. <laughs> We're not giving you here something, well, hey, uh, I'm a Christian and I, I can go ahead and sin anyway and God will forgive me. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, you're no better than the Gnostics then. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Say, yeah, God will forgive me though. It's alright. I know what I'm going to do here. Uh, you, don't, you don't have that right to say that. We don't have the right to say that. What we are to do though is reckon our sin dead because of the cross. The power that's been extracted because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Our nature was sin. So we are never to deceive ourselves. Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body. It's in my members. This sin nature. I hate it. Do you guys hate the sin nature? Don't you hate that? It's not that you have two natures. You have the nature of God who now resides in you. The only problem is, I like to use this term, we're incarcerated in this flesh. That's the problem. Once we get out of the flesh, we will not sin again in our actions. Well, this is the bad news. It tells how bad man is. As John Piper said in the sermon, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. As the music went on, with a Michael Jackson song. I am bad. John Piper is bad. Dennis Helton is bad. Now we get to the good news. It's the news of God's provision. Verse 9. It's not an if we say here. It's if we confess. If you're confessing your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sins are what we do now. If we confess our sins. We, we looked at sin, the sin nature. Now we look at sins, our acts, the practical part. Confession of sin is a test of salvation. Do you, do you confess your sin? Well, that's a good mark. That's a really good point there. That's what Christians do. They can choose to confess sins. Now, there are people who can go around repenting and still not be converted. But as a whole, that's a good place to be. If they're not confessing sin, they say they don't have sin, then I have to question, are they Christians? Because here it says that you... Here's a mark of a Christian. They confess their sins. That's just what John says. It's black and white. It's true. 
So uh, you have to go with John here. The word hamalageo is the word. Homo, homo is same. Uh, homosexual, same sex, right? Homo, same. Lageo is word or to speak, to say. To say the same thing or I am agreeing with God about my sin. I'm coming to Him recognizing that what I have just done in my action is against His holiness. I'm agreeing with Him. That's the thought. To say the same thing. Now, is, is this a conditional thing or a, a, a non-conditional? It, it, it looks like it's conditional. In one sense it is, but no, by the time we're with it and looking at it truthfully, it's not a condition. If you do this, then He'll forgive you. If you don't, then He won't forgive you and you're going to hell. And he, He's not going to cleanse you. And you or, um, you, I believe in eternal security, but that means I'm going to have to go into... My going to the eternal state with unrighteousness, right? Because I didn't get cleansed. Or no, 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 I get a new body at least. Well, what happens with that? Well, the the thing is in verse seven, uh, this is a little difference, but it's going to show that there's a lot of comparison. In it. If we walk in the light, as He in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is a continuous action. Did you know that Jesus, the interceder, because of His blood that He shed, not only did He do it there, but it keeps on cleansing us? It's a constant cleansing of us. We are constantly in righteousness before God. So in verse 7, it's unconditional. If we're in the light, if we have fellowship with Him, if we're believers, He's cleansing us. And verse 9 says, but if we do this, then He's going to forgive us. Right? That looks like that. Well, here's a verse that the Roman Catholic Church uses to support the confession. The confessional. Where you go before a priest and he absolves your sin. He is the one who forgives your sin. And this is the one I'd always like to ask a priest. How does he get his sin forgiven? Well, I guess he goes to another priest. Does he? Right? So, who's forgiving their sin? The priest, a man, forgives their sin. Wow. I know um, there's another section that they deal with this, I think out of James also. But Can forgiveness be earned? Can we earn our forgiveness? Isn't that what it is? If I do this, then I'll be forgiven. No, we can't. Because we're saved by grace. There is nothing we can do. If we are the ones confessing our sins, then we are the ones who are being forgiven. He's just—he's not saying confessing the sins to somebody, but confessing our sins to who? The Lord, right? The ones who are forgiven are characterized as confessors. The ones who are forgiven are the confessors. The confession, listen to this, the confession is because of being forgiven. We're forgiven. We keep on confessing our sins. We have been forgiven. And this, there is a relationship that we have with Christ and when we do that, it, we are always in the relationship, but there's a, there's a fellowship or something that has been broken in the sense of communication. And that's why confession is so important. But He keeps on forgiving us of our sin. He has cleansed us there. The confession is because we are forgiven. If we continually confess, then we are the ones who are forgiven. It just shows that we are Christians. Does that help? Because it sure looks like there's an if here. And you can say everything that I learned is blown away by this one. Proverbs 28.13 A wise saying here, He who covers his sins will not prosper. 
But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. They are shown, they're really showing that there is mercy there for the one who is confessing. He is showing that he hates his sin. He wants to agree with God that what he's done is wrong. Far as the east is from the west, God has cast away our sin. You know, those kind of uh, verses. The holy God that we know allows sinful man to come into his presence because of what happened at the cross. The cross is the answer to all the dilemmas of humanity. That's what we're doing when we go confess. We're saying, Lord, this is wrong what I've done. What we're doing is we're going back to the cross realizing He forgave us there. That's where the work was done. It's not a matter of our actions. Yes, there is a matter of obedience and confession. Instead of denying sin, we need to admit it, don't we? Confess sin. Don't ignore it. It's just like a father who has a son who's just deliberately disobeyed him. Now you think the father is going to say, get out of my house and never come back again. Yes, you were in my family. You're not now. You're done. Now, there might be some fathers who have done that. But really, that's not a mark of a true relationship. Usually, a, 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 a father who wants to do right, will he will make that child come to him and then they will get something straightened out. He's not going to divorce him from that family, but he wants to get that child to admit that he has done wrong and that he doesn't want to do that again. Why should there ever be sin in the life of a believer that robs us from the kind of fellowship that we really need to have with the Father, right? If we confess, He says, come right to Him. Go right to the throne room, confess that sin, and bring it into the light. Just go ahead and let it be shown to me. He already knows. He knew long before you even did it. (laughs) He knows all the sins we have uh, done and are doing and will do. But bringing it into the light because of the blood that has been shed, uh, it's gone out of our memory. He says, Okay, now, you don't even have to think about that. If you are really truly repenting, see, repenting and, and, and confession is true. If you, or you are saying, I am really sorry for this and I want this changed in my life. God is faithful always because He's already promised forgiving us of our sin. He will do this because He's promised it. Did you know that when we confess our sin, God is glorified? Even confessing sin? He said, I want to glorify God. Boy, I'm sure my sin sure didn't. But yeah, but the confessing of it is because He puts His display of His justice and faithfulness. He says He's just and righteous, right? To forgive us of our sin. He is faithful and just. He has done that, but then it puts us in the the proper perspective. Look in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. This is, again, David. We had Psalm 51. When Psalm 32, you get David's sin and the joy of forgiveness here. We'll start in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. We are blessed. Your sin has been forgiven. You are blessed. That means happy. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's that deceit. When I kept silent, this is David, my bones grew old. He went for a year not confessing his sin. Though through my groaning all the day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He dried up. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, 
David knew he was a believer and that he had a relationship with the Lord, we say, but he forgave. Yeah, there is that sense in a parental forgiveness. Yes, God has forgiven, but there is a cleansing that has to keep on going on. And when we confess, now we've gotten our communication back in and He says He forgave His iniquity. And you'll notice, even in verse 5, there are three Hebrew terms for sin. One of them is found in the word sin. I acknowledged my sin to you. I agreed with you, Lord. And my iniquity... That is rebelliousness. Just man's terribleness. Terrible acts. I'll confess my transgressions. That's walking over the line. Straight out disobedience. It says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave me. I am now back in communion with you. I dried up. It was a terrible time. He hurt. It hurt him physically, mentally, spiritually, every which way. And God, we know, is faithful to put us back into that relationship. In that that sense, that's where the forgiveness is. Although ultimately it's at the cross. And that's what it is. He is righteous to forgive He is just to forgive. The penalty is paid in full. He said He would keep on forgiving and cleansing. Look in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. This is the covenant that God makes. This is the covenant that we have entered into. No more, and eventually we'll get to a point where we will not even have teachers and books, dictionaries, commentaries, concordances. Look at this. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Since that has happened, it really has. We're still in the flesh, so we still sin. But He's saying the sin is not held against you. Judicially, that's the way it is. There is a parental aspect. God punished our sin in Christ because He had to do something with that sin. And that's even our future sins. Jesus became the propitiation for our sin. And we'll get to that in a few more verses down the line. What we're speaking about is what God has done. Let's go to 1 John now. Same chapter, well, chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. For His name. And He's going to be faithful. Whatever He says, He's going to do. Because it's about His holy name. It's about His truth and His promise. He will never break a promise. Look in Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Boy, this is about the character of God, isn't it? Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. He will not count that. He will not put it in the bookkeeping book and put it over there in the column and say, ah, there's another sin for Dennis. Boom, boom, boom. Boy, I'll tell you what, if he has one more sin, then he's ahead in sin than he is over here. We'll see what happens. But it looks like he's been knocked out right now. You know what? That sounds ridiculous to us, but I want to tell you, I think that is the ongoing theology of many people today. God is keeping that, that uh, book going. 
He says, I don't impute that to them. It's been wiped away. Every transgression. And David says, blessed are the ones who that has happened. Now, we already saw that in the psalm, didn't we? Psalm 32. We read it right here in Romans as Paul quoted from David talking about sin. And we are made uh, declared righteous. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? I don't feel like forgiving them. And then you get that next phrase. Even as God in Christ forgave you. You know what that did? That just knocked you down to the floor. Because Christ forgave you. And you know all those sins that you did? You know, your nature and everything. God in Christ forgave you. Past tense. The confession is because of what? Forgiveness. We confess and we continually keep on confessing because of forgiveness. Continual confession characterizes Christians. Now we go to 1 John and we move to our next verse. In verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 110. Okay. If we say, so here's another claim, here's the third claimer. We've had it in verse 6, if we say. Verse 8, if we say. Now verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. The third claim, this guy says, I've never sinned. I don't believe in sin. I've never sinned. I don't know how many people you're going to run into that will say that, but there are some people who don't believe that there is such thing as sin. So they, they never sin. They say they're doing things that are not wrong. And I think this is a display of the arrogance of mankind to make this kind of claim. I think this is the most serious of all. I've been pretty good. I think God can let me in. I've done well. And I don't sin. I don't have, I'm, not, I'm not a murderer. Right? These guys are called by the Apostle John liars. They're not just being deceived, as verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, hey, I don't have any sin anymore, you're deceiving yourself. Then verse 10 is even worse. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. It's not just being deceived, we're now calling Him a liar. They're, they're calling God a liar. God says that all are sinners and all need His grace. Oh, when we see Jesus in glory, that's when we'll be without sin. We'll see Him as He is. We will be like Him. Absolutely, perfectly sinless. And that can be the best thing that can be. Did you know there are angels in heaven who are sinless? Angels who have never sinned and never will sin. People talk about free will. Did you know that when we get to a point where we cannot sin again, do you know we will not have a choice to sin? Uh, God put God force is going to force that will on us. Aren't you glad? That is the best thing. I can't sin anymore. He's not going to give us a choice to where we can sin. I don't like free will. You know what? The more that I think about it, I go, goodness, that's great. Thank you, Lord. I cannot sin anymore. And the other day I was thinking about the angels. There were some who were given the choice and what did they do? They went. Left His presence along with Satan. The other ones were the elect angels who did not have that. i got to be careful. But it never says that they had a choice. There were some that were elect. Others had their free will and they decided to go against God. Interesting. What I'm telling you is that when you get to heaven, you're not going to have a choice of how great that place is going to be. Did you know that? So I want this kind of furniture and this. Listen, it will be far above anything you can even imagine. God, you can take my free will. Remember that song that we sang? Take my life a little bit. Take my will. My will. Jesus said, I don't want my will. I want the Father's will. When we get to that point and realize that the world has been deceiving us for years, all of our lives we've heard it in public school, I heard it from day one. You have the free will, you can choose. 
You can, well, certain things you can in this life, but as far as God is concerned, you don't have that because you really hate God. Well, anytime somebody says that uh, they don't sin, well, they're guilty of defamation of the very character of God. They're calling Him a liar. And Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. God is truth. All has sinned come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 God has contrasted the nature of God full light with the nature of man and He has shown that there is a difference between those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. Do you see what John is doing? He's splitting it right down the middle. Either you're in the light or you're not in the light. You're in the light, you're in the dark. That's just the way it is. There is no in-between. It's one or the other. Wow, you make it easy, John. Well, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to clarify here something that had been muddied up. Now, we, we go into chapter 2, the first two verses. Can you believe we're going from one chapter right on into another one? But it's, it's because it's still in the same subject, same topic. It's a call to holiness. You can say, okay, yeah, I sin, I agree with that, I'm nature is sin, and I, I do sin, so therefore, um, hey, I, I just did it, and um, hey, I don't have any excuse, but at the same time, that's just the way that I am, and so you have to excuse me. No. No, we're not giving license to sin. Romans 6. Well, what should I do? Just go ahead and keep sinning that God be glorified? No. Not at all. I'm saying, quit your sinning. You know what you're doing wrong. Stop it. Quit right now. This is a call to holiness. This is my little children. Little children. These things are right to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm not giving you license to sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John now begins a new form and addresses the problem of sin in the Christian. It's not now if we walk or if we confess, right? If we say, if we say, and then he comes along in verse 7, if we walk, in verse 9, if we confess, now it's, it's getting a balance. While we do not in any way claim that we can be sinlessly perfect, while the Bible teaches that our old sinful nature still is residing, living in us, in our flesh, the fact of the matter is that we ought not to encourage sin. We should not condone sin in any shape or form. We have no excuse. Because of what He's done, we should not desire to ever sin again. Now, there may seem to be a contradiction with what we have spoken about. We just said something that said we were going to sin. Yeah, but we have all we need to, to, to win against sin. The only thing is we are weak and we're going to lose some battles. But it's not an ongoing, constant losing of battles like a, a sinner is in. God is a holy God. Let's make that clear. I think we pointed that out last week. God is holy. And He says this, Be ye perfect, for the Father in heaven is perfect. And we go, what? I cannot wrap my brains around that. Be ye perfect. How can I be perfect? I can't be perfect. Well, the real answer to how a Christian relates to sin is found in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, verse 2, or chapter 2. He practices sin. I mean, he, he does sin. He can actually commit a sin, but he's told by a holy God not to sin. Christian still battles the nature. But then in verse 1, we see that we have an advocate. That is great. Relating to eternal security here, we have an advocate with the Father. 
and when we look at it here, we could I think we've got a demarcation or uh, do mark the designation for uh, God there. It doesn't say we have an advocate with God. We have an advocate with the Father. Now, the Father is God, but there now we're taking it to the very personhood of the Father. Because we have an advocate who is with the Father, that being Jesus Christ. So if a man sins, we have Father who is our God, but He's still our Father, isn't He? And that's why John makes that point. He is our Father. He's one that we run to. A son may disgrace his father terribly, but if he is his son, and it's a fact of birth, it's not a fact of behavior that he's no longer now his son. He's still his son. And he is faithful and just. Right? This father is. So what John is talking about here is not judicial forgiveness, but he's talking about confessing our present sins to God. And when we do that, we realize we're in a good relationship with Him. There's a parental forgiveness there that we can now say to put this in an application for us. We have been saved. We are being saved. You know, there's that part. It's sanctification. And that's what's in in First John here, what we're looking at. We need to turn ourselves over to our advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ and the Father there. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the one who's convicting us of our sins. So the whole triune God is involved in this. We were um, bothered at salvation because of our sins. Because of our sin. But in our present day walk, do you remember Jesus washed the feet of Peter? And Peter said, Oh no, you, you just can't, you can't wash my feet. You know, you know, here you're acting like a servant and you shouldn't be doing that. And he says, well, you have no part of me. Oh, okay, wash me all over. He says, you don't need to be washed all over. That's already been happened. You have been washed. You've been bathed. I have to wash your feet, though. I have to keep on cleansing you as you are here. So that's what's happening to us. God promises to forgive sin. And He is concerned for them uh, that they would not sin. That's what John is saying. He wants them to keep free from sin. That's what we would want for each other, right? We don't want any of us to be sinning, even though it happens. But how does the assurance of forgiveness lead to holiness? How can that happen? Well, knowing that God has forgiveness, He's done that, and look at His great love, His mercy, doesn't that really say, look at what He has done. I desire to be obedient to Him. Look at everything that's been paid. He's already done that. Look what He did at the cross. We are one by that. We're broken in the sense, oh, I've offended Him. Look what He did for me and look what I've done. Our relationship is still in fact um, intact, you know, in the sense, but we need an advocate. And what's that? Well, we need where we can approach God knowing that we have the work of Christ has been done. The advocate term is a legal term. It's a judicial term here. Advocate. One called alongside of. And actually the word is parakleton. And you might have heard of that word before. We have a paraclete. John 14. Paraclete is the Holy Spirit. It means to call alongside. In this case, it's Jesus Christ. As, uh, in a sense, He's pleading for another Another person in court, in the court of law. That's what an advocate or a lawyer does. He pleads the case. We can't present the evidence, but He can. Christ presents the evidence of what He's done. And so, there is the concern. He makes intercession for us. The Holy Spirit is doing that. Christ is our priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. I think we find that in Romans. 
Look in Romans 8.34, for instance. A lot of doctrinal lessons in here today, isn't there? 8.34 Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's done the work and He continues to do it. He ever lives to make intercession for us. In Hebrews, we get that same thought. He is interceding for us. Folks, we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us. We have Jesus Christ interceding for us. We have the Father who we can go before. Aren't you relieved that your sin is taken care of? He just wants us to go to Him and admit it. He actually comes to help us when we need Him. He's the righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous. So there He's called the advocate. He's also called the righteous. The righteousness of His character governs the nature of Him or His advocacy for us. He is righteous. He presents the case faithfully and with perfection. You have the perfect lawyer. Christ is righteous. So, does God ever just sweep the sin under the rug? Then He says, okay, you've been forgiven. Okay, yeah, fine. No. He doesn't just sweep it under there. Uh, He does... uh, He's not diluting His very righteousness. See, that's, that's taken away from His character. So that we can get into the door of heaven in some way. What He's doing, He's remaining absolutely righteous as He looks back at what Christ has done, as Christ is interceding for us even now. You see, this is very humbling. And that should make us want to come to Him and say, Lord, I confess before You, I still fall short of Your great glory. I thank You for Your Son. Thank You what You did there. Now we have propitiation in verse verse 2. Christ is the righteous and He Himself is the propitiation. The word is halasmos. This is a great word. A big, fancy, theological, seminary word that we all need to memorize if we don't know what this means. You say, well, it's a seminary term. That's just for those seminary guys and preachers. No, it's for every one of us. This is a beautiful term. The only thing is, is they're taking it out of our new translations. I'm not saying new translations are wrong. I'm just saying you don't see that term always anymore. But it is a great word. It's not just expiation, but it's propitiation. What's expiation then? Well, what does exit mean? Out, right? Ex. Expiation means he takes a sin and puts it away. And that's part of propitiation, but it's not the end of it. It doesn't stop there. It means that because of the satisfaction that Christ did for the Father, as He did His work on the cross, that sacrifice that He did satisfies the Father. The just demands of the righteousness and the holy law has been met. Not in us, but in the person of Christ. The sin has been taken away. God uh, placates His wrath against sin. The Old Testament sacrifices are beautiful pictures of what was going to come. Those animals that He did, uh, that He had for the people to bring into the tabernacle and the temple. and uh, Such feast days of the Day of Atonement and such gave a great picture of what happened. Of course, you can think of uh, even the, the goat that would get away and run away. That was expiation, taking the sin out, getting out of the camp. And then there was also a satisfaction that went up to God as that smoke went up and it was pleasing to Him that the sacrifice had been done. He was appeased. Now that sounds offensive to people because the gods of all the other pagan nations would have sacrifices too and their gods would be appeased if you sacrifice your son or your daughter. That's not the same thing, but there is a satisfaction that that God has had. God is angry against sin. He hates sin. 
At the very center of the gospel is the cross, and at the very center of the cross is propitiation. The message of the cross is that His blood has been shed. The Father sees that blood that's been done, and He says, well done. It's good. All the ones that He died for, it's been taken care of. When I sin, His blood is cleansing me. Here's another thing. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Atonement was in the Old Testament. The, uh, the atonement, there was the covering there. That was the, the Ark of the Covenant. God was pleased and satisfied with what went on there as they bring and put the blood there. We have the entrance into that kind of fellowship. A penal substitutionary atonement means uh, when, you, when you think of penal, you think of what? There had to be punishment. Yes. That, my friend, friends, has been diluted in the body of Christ. That's why there are a lot of really good books coming out now because it's been lost. People don't talk about it. And when you tell that, there's a whole theology out there in the Christian realm. I'm not talking in cults of saying, no, there was no punishment to Christ. What that did was show an example of how good of a person that He was and that He loved us. But God would never punish His own Son. What kind of a God is that? Yes, He did. Who killed Jesus? Well, we did. My sin did. The Romans did. The Jews did. Who really killed Jesus? Who sent Him there ultimately? Why did He come to earth? God sent Him there. He was pleased to crush Him. For He knew that was the only way that our sins would be taken and then we would be forgiven. Christ satisfied the very wrath of God and the anger of God and the justice of God right there at the cross. And when you think of that, the next time you think about sinning, you think about Him being crushed. The work has been finished. It's been accomplished. And I want to tell you, it's not just potential. That sin that he died for was very specific. It wasn't just, well, it's in case. This is for all the people who are not going to even be Christians. He's going to pay their price and hope that they come on in too. It's not that. It's a definite atonement. It's particular. He is was dying and paying for the sins of the ones who are His. If He pays for everybody else, then they get in too, or else you have double indemnity or double jeopardy. He pays, well, yeah, but they don't believe. Okay, well, now they're going to have to pay. Yeah, but Christ has already paid at the cross. Listen, He made it sufficient. It was sufficient enough, the Reformers say, that he, it would have been possible. I mean, in the sense that it was sufficient enough for all, but it was efficient or effective for who? The very ones he died for. It would have been enough, but ultimately, who does he die for? Particular people. If he died for everybody, what kind of a redemption do you have? Think about it. What is it called? Universal atonement. If he died for everybody... Everybody gets in. He paid the price. And so now you look at verse 2 and you go, Dennis, I don't know about that. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see, there it is, Dennis. See, He died for the whole world. Yeah, He did. Because it says it there. But where in the world do we get that that means every person that has ever been born, uh, past, present, future, or the ones that's going to come or that are living now, everybody else, well, if they are, then we now have a universal atonement. You can say, well, what's the deal with the whole world? For God so loved the world. Does that mean each and every one? I went to this event and everybody in town was there. Really? Everybody? 
most often, whenever he says whole world or all, does he mean all? I mean, as we think of in our language, what's going on here? Well, the world here probably means the rest of the world that includes all kinds of peoples, tribes, nations, tongues. He says out of them, that that includes out all over the world, there's also a propitiation for them. That would be the Gentiles as opposed to the Jewish Christians. It's not just for our sins, but also for people that are spread out all over the world. Now, is that starting to make some sense? It would not be between Christians that are now and the, the rest of the unsaved world, everybody in it. But between the Jews who were Christians and now Gentiles who are now Christians for whom Christ died for, they make up the church and there are other people out there that are spread out all over. It's sufficient to cover the sins of everybody who was born, but it's really efficient or effective for the ones that He chose. But the gospel invitation goes to everybody. The actual payment of that sin, the ransom for the many, the many, the ones that are His, was done there. Jesus fulfilled the pattern of the Old Testament sacrifices, but He did it in such a way that now Gentiles, as well as Jews, are saved. Anyway, difficult passage, but I think as we look at it, we see that if Jesus had done so much for us, and not only for us, but also for people who are scattered all over the world, and people who are yet to be born maybe, if this leads us to praise Him, should it not lead us to holiness? Because that's where this is all bringing up to. He's saying, okay, here's what He's done. Now, if you do sin, you have an advocate. But you don't have a pattern of that ongoing sin anymore. And because of Him, with His power, what He's done, why would we want to continue that same old thing that we keep stumbling over, right? So there's where He brings in that aspect of the holiness of God. Let's pray.